This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And unfortunately, we have a very familiar top topic, long-term care. Why is it that after all the browbeating and the promises and the talk, we still seem to be unprepared for the second wave that is here? It's upon us. Long-term care is still suffering from staffing shortages and thousands of residents are still stuck in rooms with three or four residents. So here in Ontario, as of last Friday, 74 long-term care homes and 44 retirement residences were in outbreak. Now bear in mind, in those settings, one case is considered an outbreak. So is the problem, as the opposition says, that the government was trying to cheap it out and not provide the correct amount of money for the correct fix. Again, here in Ontario, the long-term care minister says it's complicated. You can't just conjure up people who are qualified for the work. But then again, as we just heard, uh, she was so upset with these questions that she walked out of a news conference before it was done. We'll have to get the story on that. And amid all of this, there are new restrictions in many long-term care homes. And again, this for residents who are really starved for human contact. So let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to go to our Zoomer squad. We've got Bill Van Gorder, the Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hey, guys. Hello. Good afternoon. Okay. Well, so uh, what do you make of that? Is the situation the fault of the Ontario government? Or is it just that you can't fix a staffing shortage overnight and you can't build new homes overnight? Bill? Well, I think that, you know, the fact that uh, Minister Fullerton uh, walked out of the meeting today shows how frustrated uh, she is by the system. The system is broken. It's not working. And uh, even though uh, many people think they know what the answers uh, are in terms of the immediate uh, solution, the fact of the matter is there have to be substantive changes. These little tweaks that the government is making or the announcements of throwing money at it aren't going to solve the problem. They haven't yet and they won't in the future unless there's action now. Okay, Peter, what do you think? Um, Like... I think it was about a month ago they they announced a fifty million dollar um, program to bump up uh, nurses and uh, personal support workers in long term care homes. Um, that included a five thousand dollar signing bonus for PSWs. Um, and if they haven't got uptake on that, um, 
I'm concerned that people just don't want to work there at all. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter what the pay is. It, it, it's just such a um, you know su- such a, a difficult place to work and a lot of tension, a lot of uh, you know potential to get sick yourself. That people are just not wanting to work there. So I, I'm not sure how they're going to overcome the staff shortage until they um, you know un- until people see it as a better place to work. David, uh, what's your view on this? And it's interesting that as soon as they announced that bonus, and I think it might have been for recent nursing grads, uh, you know, the nurses union stepped in and said, well, uh, it's just causing dissension because one group of people is getting a bonus and another and others are not. I mean, is this sort of devolving into squabbling among the different pay grades? Well, for sure it is, and I, I echo what Bill said and, and Peter that you've got uh, announcements of sums of money, but very, very vague on the details. When when the Minister Fortin announced, for example, at the end of September, four hundred million for recruiting the Ontario Long Term Care Association, which said in its press release after the announcement that they need to recruit, and I'm quoting, an army. And they saw the money as building a solid foundation for our recruiting efforts. That's in quotes again, directly from their uh, uh, press release. Well, that sounds suspiciously vague and very, very off in the future to me, building a foundation. I wish the minister would come out or somebody would come out and say, here is exactly how many positions we are that are short. We're short X thousand bodies. And yes, long-term recruiting and better pay and more money is going to solve part of it, but we have an immediate need. And, you know, I note that the Red Cross is moving in on a number of nursing homes in Ottawa. We need to get specific numbers of what's the shortfall and how are they proposing to fill it in the immediate future when lives are at stake. And so far, there's been no detail about that that I'm aware of. Well, the the other part of it is that the NDP, the opposition, just put out a press release saying there's 6,000 positions short. And uh, the minister, who just stormed out of the meeting, said, absolutely, no, there are not. Fair enough, but then what's the number? Yeah, what's (laughs) the number, exactly? I mean, okay, is it 4,000? Is it 1,000? What is it? Peter, do you see a problem that it's it's really hard to get past, again, some of the union politics and the squabbling among the different aspects of the pr- profession? Yeah, it, I mean, that that's always going to come up, Libby. And it, it, uh, unfortunately, whenever, you, whenever the government does something, as you say, the, uh, the unions say, no, 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 that's not fair. You know, it has to be done this way. And um, so I, I guess they're going to have to do what they always promise to do and get all the stakeholders around the table and hammer out uh, an agreement that works in their in their collective bargaining interests as well as as for hiring nurses and personal support workers from from the home's point of view. So um, I, you know I, I don't think they've sat down. I, I mean we we see the uh, union sending off letters and press releases, but I'm not sure they've they've had any face to face meetings to solve this. Uh, you know, the the labor shortage. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know that even when the union says, oh, you can uh, you can hire nursing grads and then and then you hear somebody from long term care saying, well, actually, no, we can't. I mean, it, it just seems like, uh, you know, underneath all of this, there's squabbling among the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. There's uh, certainly a lot of, uh, 
you know, people seeking out their own their own domain, you know, and and that's never a helpful uh, development when when there's such a, a crisis on the horizon. Now, one thing that we are going to delve into a little more in the in the next segment because we have the appropriate people. There do see, does seem to be a more robust arrangement for hospitals kind of looking out for long-term care. There's a hub and spoke system. And we saw in Ottawa, a couple of long-term care homes that were completely out of control. Uh, their management was given over to a hospital. Is that a good thing, David? I think it's a good thing because uh, if it's, I, I think it's a recognition that there are short-term needs, immediate needs right now that cannot be met by uh, systemic <clears throat> reforms as vital as those are. And I think where maybe the government has uh, erred here is that they haven't separated out. Look, it's the middle of October. We need to get to April 1st. So we have a, I made that number up, whatever it is. We need to get to this date where this thousand bodies short. Here is where we are going to find those bodies. It's a band-aid, but it's vital. It's life and death. And then part two, the longer-term plan is this. There's nothing wrong with the longer-term plan and throwing more money at recruiting. And there's nothing even wrong with saying it's going to take some time to get all the stakeholders reconciled. But what are you doing, uh, you know, when the house is on fire right now? And I don't think they've separated that out uh, properly, either in their policies or their communications, as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know... One of the things that obviously keeps cropping up is the divide, you know, between for-profit and not-for-profit. Peter? Yeah, again, we're seeing, um, well, and and it's particularly from the the nurses' union as well, and and from the NDP, they're putting full-on criticism about, uh, you know, that outbreaks tend to happen more so in private homes than than government-run homes. But... um, you know, this this situation is not over, and it, it, I think it's too early to say, you know, the private homes dropped the ball on this, and I think we have to wait until we see what the final numbers are to, to make that judgment. So right now, I think that's unhelpful, and it's just clouding an issue that, uh, you know, otherwise needs to be settled soon. Mm-hmm. And Bill, the new restrictions, it's, I mean, here in Ontario and in parts of the rest of the country, uh, we're in a kind of modified stage two. Of course, it's very different where you are in the Maritimes, but there are new restrictions. Uh, now, long-term care home residents are not allowed to leave unless it's for something critical. And and some of that means, you know, it was pointed out it's one thing to say, okay, you can't leave to go to a birthday party, uh, which is not happening, but it's quite another uh, to say that you can't leave to go for a walk. And, and there's, uh, there certainly is causing anxiety and confusion among uh, the residents and their families because the communication is not always uh, clear or uh, understood. There really need to be some dedicated communication resources between the residents and their uh, families. And we've got to make sure that, that what, the, what the long-term care facilities themselves are saying uh, is the same as what government officials uh, are saying. So because people are confused, they're not uh, quite uh, sure what the, that's really being uh, required uh, of them. And then they don't always have the opportunity to follow through on the uh, 
of the rules uh, themselves, the the lack of uh, uh, testing uh, available, the speed of testing means that often families are are restricted uh, that way from even coming in when, uh, by regulation, they would be allowed to be with their loved ones and and give some care in the home. Well, you can designate uh, caregivers up to two, uh, but it, it, for some families that doesn't work if there are three children. So how do you choose who is the caregiver who's allowed to go in and, and, and who isn't, David? Well, I don't think that you can. I, I think that uh, you're forced to make arbitrary decisions. But I also want to go back to something you said earlier, Libby, about you can't go out for a walk. They're contradicting their own policies that apply to the rest of the population. Just because I live in an area that has a quote-unquote outbreak, uh, if I'm not infected, if I'm wearing a mask, if I'm maintaining social distance from other people, uh, what's going to happen to me out there because I'm 85 and a resident of a nursing home that medically wouldn't happen to a uh, uh, 85-year-old person who's not in a nursing home. It's fine to say everybody has to wear a mask. It's fine to say nobody can go into a store or a building, uh, you know, without a mask. But why are these people uniquely being uh, um, penalized? It's, uh, I think it's very abusive, and it's, there's, there's no scientific basis for it based on the other stuff they're doing with other segments of the population. So it's, it's outrageous, frankly. Uh huh. And uh, Peter, I mean, what do you does do you get the impression that the government is just sort of flailing around and being really reactive and sort of ad hoc? Yeah, that's that's certainly what it seems like, (laughs) Libby, and and that's never a good uh, optic to have. But and and nor is it a good optic to walk out of a press conference when you don't want to take a question. But um, seriously, uh, they were they were caught. Um, short the first time around. They want to make it seem like they're doing something. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with the, um, I, I agree with cutting down visitors, but um, allowing essential caregivers in is a big step forward for them this time around. I think that'll, that'll um, help take some of the heat off them and will help, the, they more importantly, help the patients and the, the residents of the, these homes have family members visiting. So that that's a good development. And uh, that that's, you know, that was a mistake they made the first time around. They've corrected themselves. But other than that, they're they're clearly flailing, and they have no idea how to control this. Well, uh, I, again, this is something that I'm going to uh, get to in the next segment when we talk to people from the hospitals. But it seems like they're they're poised to make the same mistake with hospitals that they made in in long term care before. I mean, um, th- there are now people from long term care in hospitals. So I don't know. I mean, there there are still people who live three and four to a room, but they aren't there aren't any new placements in situations like that, which I guess is a bit of a step forward. Yeah, small steps. You know, um, they're, they're um, you know, they're not going to take uh, caregivers or personal support workers' word that they they don't have it. They're going to test them, I think, rather than letting them in if they don't show symptoms, because we know asymptomatic people can still spread it. So um, they're getting on top of that, as you say about the uh, no more admittance to the triple and quads and. Um, you know, they they have a better idea how to clean infection control. And um, 
things like that. So, so there there is hope that they might mitigate some of the worst uh, of the last experience, but uh, certainly. Um, you know, the threat is always there. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'd, I'd like to uh, move on to a topic that is uh, equally, if not more depressing, and people, I apologize for this. <laughs> Maybe we'll think about some good news before we get to the end of this segment. But uh, a new survey showed that uh, most of the gunshot deaths are older men in rural areas dying by suicide. David? It's not. It's not uh, surprising. I saw uh, that statistic briefly. I didn't know what uh, geography it applied to, but it's. It, there, there's no question that this entire pandemic and its consequences, over and above the immediate uh, contagion and deaths due to COVID, is causing a ripple effect in other areas of uh, both mental health and physical health. There are some disturbing statistics, early statistics I've seen coming out of um, Johns Hopkins about uh, how many undiagnosed cancers, how many untreated uh, heart conditions, how many postponed surgeries that turn out to have been necessary after all, uh, when added to the cost and the and you know isolation, depression, uh, particularly inability to connect with other people, all of these things matter, but I think you could take from this statistic and project it back into nursing homes where we know that lack of contact and isolation uh, leads to more serious medical problems. And I think if we took that broader look at this, we'd be even more shocked and horrified than we are already. Uh, And, you know, um, these statistics uh, for for this suicide rate, I mean, it's it's actually – it's a trend that has been growing about older men, and I don't know if it's the psychology of older men, but it's from before the pandemic, Peter. Yeah, um, Zoomer had a big, um, Zoomer magazine had a big uh, feature on suicide in older men, and um, one of the curious things it found, Libby, was that, you know, uh, men over 45 report um, the highest degree of happiness on, on the, you know, the happiness index they yep. run every year. So, so um, men over 45, uh, men over 55 report the highest degree of happiness on that index, but they also have the highest suicide rate uh, <laughs> of any uh, age group between 50 and 59. So it's this curious, uh, you know, on one hand, they're reporting happiness, but on the other hand, there's, there's, a, there's a certain amount of people out there who, for what other reason are just not, uh, you know, they, they have extreme mental health pressures and are taking their own lives. And, and it's a terrible dichotomy. But uh, as David says, it'll probably, you know, the, the pandemic will only exacerbate it. You know? Yeah. And is, is there any kind of inkling about what leads to this dichotomy? That's, you know, very interesting. Yeah. Um, he, the writer sort of, like, I, I don't know if I ascribe to this, but he, he sort of puts it down to this, this sort of yearning for, um, you know, uh, the, the, you know, uh, he, he says the boomer, uh, idea of, of sex and love and money and eternal youth. And, and when these disappear, there's nothing left for the, for these, for some people. So that's what he's, he's attributing it to. I, I don't know if I buy that, but, uh, you know, he's, He's made that that connection that you know when 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 the the sort of the thrill of life is over, people um, 
people take their lives. You know? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, maybe that dichotomy is that uh, people who are happy are very happy. People who are not happy are very unhappy. Right. Um, well, so maybe there actually is some uh, some research that uh, talks about that. It's something that CARP's been looking at for a number of years, knowing that uh, uh, men over 65 in many parts of the country have the highest rates of uh, suicide. It has to do with... Uh, uh, occupation, job, and not working anymore uh, focus that for many men, more than women, the only real thing they have in their lives that they can do and look forward to is their job, their occupation. And, and when they, they and retire they or stop working, they yeah. feel useless. Yeah. Well, the the other thing that I've seen when I've done research on happiness is uh, one of the determinants of happiness is that men who are married are generally happier. And if they have a community, whether it's religious belief or, or something else. Um, so uh, is that agreed on, that, that having a partner is a good determinant for guys? I think it's true, and I think that it speaks to the idea of connections versus no connections. Um, the, you know, a widower that has... Um, family and friends and children and as part of a community uh, is quite clearly, and research shows this, does better than somebody who's left alone. There's also some research, I think I've seen on Kai High, uh, that the difference between being uh, alone and being lonely, not necessarily the same thing. To, uh, to Bill's point, if you're alone, technically, you know, unfortunately, you're, whether it's a divorce or widow or widowed, um, you're alone. You're the only person in your household, but you're a member of your church. You have kids and grandkids. You have hobbies. You go and, you know, have community activities or you have friends. Clearly, the not just suicide, the underlying health metrics of those people is way better than people who are, uh, who are isolated. Uh, social isolation, um, especially among the uh, elderly, is a very severe a problem that undermines your health overall, not just if you happen to not commit suicide. You're, you're much worse shape on a lot of other measures. Well, and it's it's interesting, and even in uh, you know, couples who are what I would say, you know, liberated in terms of their, you know, their their roles in the couple, it is still generally the woman who arranges this all the social life, and I know lots of cases where. You know, on their own, if you look at the guys, they they don't really have their own friends uh, unless they play sports or something. So I'm I'm wondering if that's a big part of it, that if they lose their partner, however, you know, suddenly they become isolated. Well, that is part, that is part of it. But it's not only those who uh, don't have a partner have lost their partner, because often uh, the uh, the woman or the marriage, or or at least one one person in the in the couple has a greater outside uh, activities that go on beyond uh, uh, an occupational life. So even though they're still together as man and wife, one of them is still isolated uh, because they're not the social uh, director. They're not the person who's been involved with other people all their lives, so they have nothing. The other partner goes on and does whatever they've always done, and once again, the uh, the man, often the case, feels isolated and alone. Hmm. 
So uh, I guess the prescription is, you know, find a, find a community. Absolutely. And find a purpose. Okay, we, we're starting to run out of time. I've, I really want to get something, you know, a little more upbeat for the week. Uh, who can give me that, Peter? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't really have that much. Uh, you know, I, I'm just interested to see, uh, you know, this isn't really upbeat, but, but I suppose I'm interested to see whether, uh, you know, Dr. Fulton survives the week after... Uh, after walking out today, and her uh, and the abysmal record they have with dealing with long-term care, it, it, it seems unlikely she'll survive the week. But we'll see. Oh, oh, oh really? Like a, a, a couple of months ago, I said she's not going to survive, and and she really seems, um, you know, fragile. <laughs> Let me just say that. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I sort of uh, left that virtual news conference before she walked out. We'll have to have a good look at it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Always, always interesting to watch the politics. Uh, so uh, the other guys, what would you like to leave us with, Bill? Well, I, I'm commenting on uh, Dr. Fulton. Right? You, know, that's, you know, doctors are very used to, as doctors, being able to say, this is your problem. This is what you should do. Now go and do it. Put her into a political mode like now. She's not able to weigh the way she's done for the last 30 years as a doctor. And I, I really feel sorry for her because I think she's a, a fish out of water and she's getting caught by a situation she can't control. Okay, and David? I'm just wondering whether if they did a better job of setting context and communicating, some of these problems might minimize. We don't know yet, for example, this much-touted wave two, which is clearly here. But I went to the uh, Ministry of Health website this morning and in the weeks, what they call week 40 and week 41, which is September 27th to October 10th, that's as far as they go as of this morning, uh, there have been 84 cases uh, in nursing homes week 40, 14 deaths, uh, 80 cases in week 41, four deaths. So we have 18 deaths in two weeks, which is a number we would have been thrilled to have at the height of the madness. So I wonder, do they believe that so far we're getting away with it or we're catching a break. Um, are there any parts of good news in this? Mm. Uh, maybe they should look a little harder and be a little more coherent in their messaging so that we all know what page we're on. Well, Cause we every, know we're flailing around too, just as much as they are. Every, everybody says don't take comfort in that because the deaths come later. But anyway. Okay, I'm, I'm in. But, <laughs> but again, we're flailing. Everybody, they're leaving everybody flailing. That's the answer I get. Okay, well, uh, we're, we're all flailing a little less after your insight. So thank you so much, uh, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thanks, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.